January 1952 should have been the pinnacle of Egyptian King Farouk's reign. On the 16th of that month, his only son, Fuad II, had been born, a son he had tried for 14 years with two wives to bear. Ten days later, the newborn heir to the throne was being celebrated at a luncheon by his father and 600 Egyptian army officers. Farouk must have been thinking of his legacy, the mighty Egyptian military before him, toasting to the future of his royal line. It was only when King Farouk took a casual look out the window that he realized something was terribly wrong. A plume of black smoke rose from the Cairo skyline. The people weren't celebrating the birth of Farouk's son. In fact, they were rioting over it. Downtown Cairo stood smoldering, the metropolitan city forever altered. Three years earlier, Farouk had ordered the assassination of Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. And now, the Muslim Brotherhood had sent a clear message. They weren't going down without a fight. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on Hassan al-Banna, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood until 1949, when he was assassinated on orders from the Egyptian king, Farouk. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. As the sun set over Cairo on February 12, 1949, Hassan al-Banna lay on the sidewalk outside the Young Men's Muslim Association, blood leaking onto the concrete of the narrow sidewalk. The identity or motive of his assailants was unclear. As the gunman's car peeled away, Albana's final thoughts likely held few answers. Albana's relationship with the government had been improving lately. His violent brethren in the Muslim Brotherhood may have planted bombs and attempted assassinations, but Albana himself had cooperated with the government and denounced the violence. Rumblings of discontent among the Muslim brothers suggested the assassination might have been an attack from within his own organization. But this seemed unlikely. In recent days, the group had actually anointed him caliph, essentially the political leader of the Muslim world. They certainly didn't seem disillusioned by him, at least not en masse. In the moments and days that followed, many more questions were raised and few answers were found. Even though the shooting had happened in broad daylight on a busy city street, emergency services were slow to arrive to the scene. Some believe this was intentional. Albana's wounds were severe, but with quick enough treatment, may have been survivable. By the time the ambulance arrived, though, it was too late. 
Hassan Albana died shortly after entering the hospital. That evening, the government announced a state of emergency and began a manhunt for the killers. However, many doubted the sincerity of their efforts. Writer Basil Mardelli recalled that a Cairo newspaper got their hands on the registration number of the assassin's vehicle. By the next morning, the government was confiscating copies of the newspaper to prevent the information from spreading to the public. A strange move, since the government's own investigative efforts were a chaotic mess. Within 24 hours of the shooting, police had arrested over 200 suspects. They spent the following days trying to sort through the most credible options, but their approach was scattershot. One early suspect was a cook for a restaurant near the shooting. His wallet had been found at the scene, perhaps dropped as he escaped. But the kitchen boy claimed innocence. He'd just dropped his wallet on the walk to work earlier that day. His name was eventually cleared. The investigation continued for a few days, interrogating and releasing suspects who were only tenuously connected to the crime. And then it stopped. The investigation concluded after a few weeks with no viable suspects in custody. Offender unknown read the record. Perhaps the police just couldn't find the assailants. But in the coming days and weeks, King Farouk and his prime minister, Ibrahim Abdelhadi, seemed to know that their brief investigation wasn't fooling anyone. Farouk ended his practice of publicly praying, fearing the Muslim Brotherhood might make an attempt on his life. The prime minister redoubled his security detail, also expecting retaliation. But for a while, no violence came. The Brotherhood's ranks had been thinned by the mass arrests that had preceded Albana's killing, and the loss of their leader had left them rudderless. Hassan Albana's funeral was a secretive affair carried out by the government with only Albana's immediate family allowed to attend. His body was escorted through the city to its final resting place by tanks and armored cars to prevent onlookers from trying to join the procession. Whatever qualms they'd had with Albana, the Muslim Brotherhood as a whole still respected him, and they took his government-mandated private funeral as a grievous insult. Three months later, the group finally took their shot at revenge. On the afternoon of May 5, 1949, Hamid Gouda, the president of the Egyptian Chamber of Deputies, had just left work. It happened quickly, as Gouda stepped into his car, a car of similar make and model as the prime minister's, Three grenades fell from a balcony overhead, hit the ground beside Gouda's car, and exploded. The assailant's aim was off, though, just wide enough of the car that Gouda managed to escape. But it was immediately apparent he wasn't the intended victim anyway. Prime Minister Abdul Hadi was. The reaction to the Prime Minister's attempted assassination was swift. Remaining members of the Muslim Brotherhood were rounded up and placed into prison camps. Some 4,000 of them were arrested in the next three months. Also in response to this attack, four long-standing court cases were finally brought to a hearing. These cases were all related to old, unresolved incidents, some of them dating back from before Albana's death. The most pivotal of these was from November 1948, an incident in which police had stopped an unlicensed Jeep by chance. Upon searching the car, they'd found documents proving conclusively 
the existence of a secret apparatus, the faction within the Brotherhood responsible for its most violent acts. This case hinged on one major question. Was Albana himself responsible for the violence of the group? Even though Albana was now dead, if the leader of the Brotherhood had led the charge on these terrorist acts, it would condemn the entire group as an extremist organization. If, on the other hand, the Brotherhood could prove that Albana was unaware of the secret apparatus, the violence could be attributed to rogue members, not the Brotherhood as a whole. The court found the Muslim brothers, implicated in the documents, guilty of a conspiracy to commit murder and destruction. And yet the judge, Ahmad Kamil Bey, was lenient. There were mitigating factors to be considered the continued British occupation of Egypt, the disastrous war with Israel. Who could blame a few wayward souls in the Brotherhood for taking out their frustration with violence? When the trial concluded in March 1951, the men involved in the case received short sentences. And a few years later, the judge who had shown them mercy became a member of the Muslim Brotherhood himself. The judge's sympathy for the Brotherhood was reflective of the general feeling in Egypt, which had, in recent years, turned against the king. During World War II, King Farouk's unwillingness to choose a side had frustrated both Axis and ally sympathizers in Egypt. But much of the blame for his indecision had gone to the British, who had conspicuously pressured Farouk until he agreed to support them. Officially, the British weren't in charge in Egypt. But time and time again, they exerted their influence and military power against any Egyptian decision that didn't comport fully with British interests. In light of this long-standing conflict, Farouk's reluctance to side with Britain during the war could be perceived, by sympathetic eyes, as an act of Egyptian nationalism. And the citizens had stood by him, however grudgingly, through the end of the war. The people still stood by him when he divorced his first wife in 1948 for failing to bear him male heirs. But it was his second marriage that would unravel what support he had left among the Egyptian people. Farouk's second marriage was preceded in 1950 by a bachelor party of outlandish proportions. Farouk journeyed to France where he gorged on the finest cuisines and gambled with reckless abandon, losing and winning back thousands of dollars each night. He was photographed incessantly by paparazzi partying with young women who weren't his fiance. Some unscrupulous photographers even tried to stage compromising situations, for example, capturing the king sitting beside full bottles of alcohol and other substances that were banned under Islamic law. For the king's part, he simply had fun. He saw no problem with going all out. It was his own wedding that he was celebrating. And he was the king. He could do whatever he wanted. At least, that's how it had always been before. In May 1951, King Farouk wed Nariman Sadek, a girl of 17 years, to his 31, in a lavish, extravagant wedding. The wealth of the royal family was thrown into stark relief alongside the poverty of the commoners. Barely off of the high of his bachelor party, Farouk's honeymoon was a full European tour. Milan, Paris, Geneva, Sicily, and more. Again, the trip begat countless gossip columns about Farouk's gambling, 
Though in the glow of new marriage, he at least refrained from spending time with other women. When Farouk returned to Egypt that summer, he found himself facing a public growing discontented, not just with his own excesses, but with the rampantly corrupt government officials that he, the king, had appointed. But skirmishes with the British in the Suez Canal broke out before long. With a renewed conflict against their hostile occupying power, the public had to concede it was no time to be replacing the entire cabinet. Eight months later, in January 1952, Farouk's son was born, a month premature, but healthy nonetheless. And 10 days after that, frustrated members of the Muslim Brotherhood forever altered the Cairo skyline. Coming up, the tensions over Hassan al-Banna's death will finally reach their boiling point. Now, back to the story. After Hassan al-Banna's death in February 1949, the Muslim Brotherhood found itself in disarray. They had been clearly marked enemies of the government. Even their peace-seeking leader wasn't above an assassination. And though King Farouk's involvement in the assassination was never conclusively proven, he certainly didn't admit to it, the circumstantial evidence strongly pointed in that direction. As we discussed last week, Albana had been scheduled to meet with a government minister on the day of his death. That official had suspiciously failed to show for the meeting, suggesting a setup, and the government's quick efforts to suppress information about the assailants, as well as the non-results of their short investigation, all indicated that the killing had been sanctioned by the state. The Brotherhood was now firmly on the wrong side of the law. But the group's battles in the wake of Albana's death weren't entirely external. They needed a new leader, and after months of debate, they settled on a respectable choice, Hassan al-Hadebi. Hadebi had been a judge for 25 years, was a well-regarded citizen of Egypt, and in general would lend some legitimacy to the group. He seemed the ideal candidate. But it wasn't long before the cracks that had formed under Albana's leadership became deep fissures and the Brotherhood began to splinter. In 1951, Egypt's new Prime Minister, Mustafa al-Nahas, announced that he would begin the formal process of ending Egypt's 1936 treaty with the British, expelling their troops from the country once and for all. This should have been a victory for the Brotherhood. After all, one of Hassan al-Banna's biggest motivations had been his distaste for the Western influence over Cairo. Egyptian nationalism was a core tenet of the group. And at the start, the prime minister's announcement was a positive shift. The Brotherhood issued a statement supporting the repeal of the 1936 treaty and the final permanent expulsion of the British from Egypt. Less supportive of the announcement were the British. On October 17, 1951, British and Egyptian forces engaged in a skirmish along the Suez Canal. When the canal was built almost a century before, it was a symbol of British and Egyptian unity. Now it was seen as a symbol of British imperialism that had gone unchecked in the Middle East. The issue was practical as well. The Suez Canal gave the British a much faster shipping lane to India. Cargo boats didn't have to sail all the way around Africa to deliver their goods. At the same time, the canal was built on Egyptian land and the British presence in their region had long produced political friction. 
Caving to internal pressures within the Muslim Brotherhood, their new leader, Hadebi, authorized Brotherhood members living in the Canal Zone to take up arms and join the skirmishes. Some 300 brothers from other towns accepted the offer too and made their way toward the canal for battle. But within a few weeks, the deeply anti-violent Hadebi was contradicting his initial orders and, like Albana before him, disavowing the actions of brothers who had begun harassing and attacking British personnel. This didn't go over well with the rank-and-file brothers. They were further perturbed in mid-November when Hadebi accepted an invitation to meet with King Farouk, the very man they suspected of killing Hassan Albana. No one knows what was discussed at the meeting, but as he exited, Hadebi brushed through a throng of reporters. With his head down, Hadebi gave standard words of praise and respect to the king. The Brotherhood newsletter reported this fact with the implication clear. Hadebi was aligning himself more closely with Farouk. In January of 1952, Hadebi went back to the palace, this time to celebrate the birth of Farouk's heir to the throne. From the Brotherhood's point of view, Hadebi was cozying up to the king who had murdered their founder. Tensions finally came to a head on January 25th when another clash with the British in the Canal Zone resulted in 40 Egyptian deaths. The Egyptians surrendered the battle. The next day, January 26th, was Black Saturday. Led by disgruntled members of the Muslim Brotherhood, citizens stormed Cairo's downtown, looting and destroying shops as they went. The destruction, in short, was deliberately symbolic. This was the international center of the city. It was the most prominent place in Egypt that represented the country's status as a crossroads of the world. Cairo's downtown was also where the wealthy British mingled with the wealthy Egyptian class, including King Farouk. This sharp refutation of the West had the added benefit of targeting the upper class who congregated in these restaurants and shopped at these department stores while lower-class citizens toiled in poverty. Trucks led the mob through the streets loaded with containers of gasoline. In preparation the night before, the leaders of the riots had marked off businesses to be burned, movie theaters, travel agencies, nightclubs, and more. Now they moved down the streets handing out gas cans to the mob, burning down buildings one by one. Besides the British, the mob's anger was focused on the king and on his baby. Crowds chanted angry smears toward the newborn prince, suggesting he had been conceived out of wedlock. By the end of the day, 400 businesses had been hollowed out by the flames. Cairo's most westernized district had been reduced to ash. Farouk responded to Black Saturday by playing musical chairs with his prime ministers trying to find someone who could quell the roiling unrest. Instead, infighting and sabotage among his advisors led to a string of increasingly ineffectual prime ministers. With each new appointment Farouk made, the chaos only got worse. And by that summer, even Egypt's own military had had enough. On July 20th, 1952, King Farouk was summering in his palatial second home in Alexandria relaxing with a favorite hobby of his, gambling. An aide beckoned Farouk, 
there was a call for him from the capital. It was Farouk's current prime minister, Hussein Siri. His spies in Cairo had uncovered a plot for a military coup. The Muslim Brotherhood wasn't the only dissatisfied group in Egypt. Last week, we mentioned a military commander named Anwar el-Sadat who had met with Albana in the 1940s. The two men had discussed the need for a complete overthrow of the government somewhere down the line. Now, al-Sadat and a group of fellow army officers had secretly formed their own society, completely unassociated with the Brotherhood, which they called the Free Officers. In 1952, after nearly a decade of secret meetings, the Free Officers were ready to make their ultimate move. The Prime Minister's spy network found out about the Free Officers' plotted coup shortly before it was supposed to be set in motion. He gave King Farouk two options. He could either promote General Naguib, the Free Officers' figurehead, to a cabinet position in hopes of calming the unrest, or he could have the conspirators arrested immediately and hopefully quash the insurrection before it began. Farouk laughed off both ideas. He knew the military men who were leading the rebellion, and he had no fear of them. He hung up the phone and went back to his vacation. Three days later, in Cairo, one of the free officer's leaders, Gamal Abdel Nasser, learned that their plot had been discovered. With no time to waste, he ordered his team to get to work immediately. But the government spies worked faster. They followed the free officer's every move and urged King Farouk to set up protections around the palace, which he finally conceded to do. When Nasser and his officers pulled up to the king's Cairo home, they found it surrounded by soldiers. Their coup had been preempted. Dejected, they drove aimlessly around the city for a while, deciding what to do next. And suddenly, they found themselves surrounded by a military convoy. Nasser and his men stepped out of the car, ready for their imminent arrest, only to find that the soldiers were led by one Colonel Youssef Sadek, who was friendly to their cause. He had commandeered an entire convoy to help them. Since the coup was planned largely by generals and colonels, much of the military was already behind the free officers' movement. Nasser and the convoy made their way back to the palace, where the force of their military equipment easily overcame the small protective guard that had stood outside. A few hours later, Nasser had set himself up in the office of the chief of staff. It was 1.30 a.m. on July 24, 1952. With the palace seized and the brunt of the Egyptian military on their side, the free officers had taken Cairo. In the middle of the night, still at his summer home in Alexandria, Farouk received word of the coup. With little option, he reached out to who else? The British, asking them to intervene on his behalf. The British demurred. So did the Americans. Farouk was on his own. From his station in Cairo, Nasser ordered the army toward the King's Alexandria summer home. They were out for blood. In the early hours of July 25th, Farouk gathered his wife and newborn son and packed all their things into his Mercedes. They would try to escape Egypt by air. But the airfields had been seized by Nasser's forces, 
as had Farouk's yacht, which was his backup plan. He was trapped. The free officers discussed what to do with the king. Many argued for immediate execution. Nasser disagreed. He was afraid of turning the king into a martyr. By one vote, the group decided Farouk would live. But he would have to abdicate the throne immediately. The next morning, Farouk signed a brief statement announcing his resignation. And then he packed his bags and left Egypt forever. The king was gone, but the Muslim Brotherhood's battle with the government was only beginning. Coming up, we'll look at the long-term consequences of Egypt's regime change and explore what might have happened if Hassan al-Banna's death hadn't set the political turmoil in motion. Now, back to our story. After King Farouk was deposed in July 1952, his new son, Fuad II, was technically the king. But Farouk and his wife, of course, brought the baby with them when they stepped onto the boat and for the last time off Egyptian soil. Farouk's exile didn't end the turmoil in Egypt. General Naguib, a leader of the Free Officers, was put in charge of the country. Within 13 months, Egypt was officially declared a republic. Naguib became its first president and shortly thereafter was muscled out to make way for the second president, Gamel Abdel Nasser, the man who had led the free officers in their coup. One might think the Muslim Brotherhood found themselves welcomed in their country once again, with the Egyptian nationalists having taken power. But even though their goals were largely aligned, Nasser distrusted them. He feared the Brotherhood might vie for power of their own, not content to let someone else dictate the direction of the country. And Nasser was right to be suspicious. In 1954, a Muslim Brotherhood member fired on President Nasser as he delivered a speech. The bullets missed, and Nasser barely skipped a beat, declaring, quote, Let them kill Nasser. He is one among many, and whether he lives or dies, the revolution will go on. After that attempt, Nasser dissolved the Muslim Brotherhood once and for all in a massive crackdown that successfully drove the group's remaining members underground. Nasser would serve as president for 16 years. During his tenure, four members of Farouk's personal police force were brought to trial for the murder of Hassan al-Banna at the direction of the government. All were convicted and Ahmad Hussein, the apparent leader of the plot, was sentenced to life imprisonment. In 1970, Nasser suffered a fatal heart attack. Power passed to his vice president, Anwar al-Sadat, the one-time friend of Hassan al-Banna. As for King Farouk, he took up residence in Rome where he became a fixture of the city's glamorous nightlife. He entertained such venerated figures as Tennessee Williams and Orson Welles. The latter was briefly signed to star as Farouk in a movie, in fact, but the project couldn't get financed. Farouk's life was simply too scandalous for a Hollywood film. His fortunes declined over the course of the 60s, and as it became increasingly apparent that he would never reassume his throne in Egypt, Farouk's reputation took a hit. One night, he was turned away from his favorite casino for not wearing the dress code, an unthinkable insult to the one-time king. Then, in 1965, Farouk went out to dinner with his latest mistress. 
during the course of a decadent meal, capped off with one of his trademark cigars, he collapsed, ostensibly of a heart attack. To this day, rumors persist that it was an order from President Nasser, a final assurance that the last true king of Egypt would not return. In 1981, President Anwar al-Sadat allowed the Muslim Brotherhood to reform in an official capacity. He ended his predecessor Nasser's single-party rule over Egypt, opening the door for the Brotherhood to begin meeting openly again. The Brotherhood's scattered factions had persisted in an extremely weakened form since their conflict with Nasser. But under al-Sadat, they began to regain their footing. Over the next 30 years, the Muslim Brotherhood's prominence and legitimacy in Egyptian politics increased until, in 2011, the unthinkable happened again. A region-wide movement spread through the Middle East in which citizens protested against the authoritarian and corrupt politicians who had risen to power. It became known as the Arab Spring, and on January 25, 2011, one day shy of the 59th anniversary of Black Saturday, the Arab Spring came to Egypt. After 30 years in power, al-Sadat's successor, President Hosni Mubarak, was ousted by angry mobs. A cheer went up and people started chanting he's resigned, and pandemonium ensued. People are so happy. They immediately lifted several soldiers on their shoulders and began carrying them through the crowd. In the election that followed, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood took the presidency, Mohamed Morsi. He led the country for just over a year before another military coup seized power. The Muslim Brotherhood was soon branded a terrorist organization once again. Arrests and executions of Brotherhood members continue to this day as Egyptian history repeats itself in circles. Arguably, the key moment of Hassan al-Banna's life happened long before he was killed. The political machine that he set in motion in 1928 was, by the end of the 40s, moving of its own accord, often against his vocal protests. But what if King Farouk hadn't ordered al-Banna's killing on February 12, 1949? What if he'd pursued peace talks with the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood instead? In 1945, through his friend Anwar al-Sadat, Hassan al-Banna arranges a meeting with King Farouk. Rather than laughing him off, Farouk listens. Al-Banna has the ear of the common people, and Farouk needs to have the common people on his side. The two quickly bond over their shared devotion to Islam, and soon they both agree they would much rather have Egypt in the hands of Egyptians than in those of the British. Farouk was likely incapable of ridding his country of its occupiers. He had plenty of motivation and opportunity over the years he was in power, and he never managed to pull it off. But even if he can't succeed at getting the British out of his country, he has a mutual understanding with the Muslim Brotherhood that, on at least one issue, they're on the same side. The violence that rocked Egypt in the late 40s seems all but inevitable. But if Farouk never ordered the death of Hassan al-Banna, perhaps the Brotherhood's founder would have succeeded in talking down the worst elements of his own society and preventing some of the bloodshed. After all, he never supported violence himself, 
And if the brothers, even toward the end, still revered him enough to consider him the leading voice of the Muslim world, it seems plausible that he stood a chance of talking them down. With Egypt in less violent, tumultuous straits and less fury directed at the king, a revolution like the Free Officers' Coup may not have been able to find enough support to succeed. The violence that swept through Egypt in those years predated Hassan al-Banna. The complex chemistry of British imperialism and Egyptian nationalism was sure to catalyze into conflict eventually. But with Farouk and al-Banna working together, both with similar, if not identical, goals for their country, maybe they could have weathered the tumult without losing everything. If the monarchy was still going strong in Egypt today, Farouk's son, Fuad II, would likely be the king. He's still alive in Switzerland. But for better or for worse, the effect Hassan al-Banna had on Egypt had almost nothing to do with his untimely death. He gave a voice to the common people of the region, the religious underclass that had never seen themselves represented by the kings and the shahs and the regents. He gave voice to the most frustrated and violent among them as well, leaving a legacy of bloodshed that has followed the Muslim Brotherhood even as their tactics have shifted toward legitimate traditional politics. For all his power, King Farouk may go down in history as the less consequential of the two men. The date of his ouster is a national holiday in Egypt now, Revolution Day. And outside Egypt's borders, he's remembered as little more than a footnote in the long, difficult history of his nation. The last Egyptian king, a leader who often failed to lead in favor of enjoying the spoils of his royal status, a king who let the loudest voices in the room dictate his next moves and who alternated between standing up for his people and standing up to them. To the extent that Farouk is remembered, his most famous act will not be the assassination of Hassan al-Banna. He was too removed from it. He was never easily implicated in it, even after his men were convicted. But that act, more than any other, may be the one that consigned him to his obscure corner of history and ripped him ingloriously from the throne of Egypt. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.